to see that our lives are bound up in one another, that we all have human dignity, right? Um, and that we are all seeking for the well-being and the flourishing of all people, not just our own people that we identify with. White supremacy is shaping people away from that. You are listening to the Music and Peacebuilding Podcast, a professional development network at musicpeacebuilding.com. Exploring intersections of peacebuilding, sacredness, community creativity and imagination through research and story. In our last podcast, we looked at Anabaptist perspectives of peace. This second in the Anabaptist series explores Dr. Drew Hart's scholarship on issues of race and white supremacy. His book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, engages personal examination and transformation, lowering defensiveness, putting our bodies in solidarity with those at the margins, and reconciling fractured relationships. And similar to our earlier podcast on decolonizing the music room, this podcast has challenged me to grow in ways that examine my white-bodied, male-bodied biases, roles, and voice. I love podcast editing because I get to pursue growth through constant revision. The word reckoning seems to center itself in today's context. Today I hear reckoning as moments that are past due, when problems that have been avoided can no longer be ignored. Whether we are confronting racism or ecological destruction, a reckoning can be a moment of centering, deep love, transformation and a time to put our bodies to the task at hand. With this in mind, I let Drew Hart's wisdom inform my ongoing complicit role and restorative response to destructive systems of hate and racism. I began by asking Dr. Hart about his spiritual and religious formation. It all began on the campus of Messiah College. Um, in fact, it's interesting, I went there as a biblical studies major and always had at least some idea that my vocation calling was moving towards ministry in some form. But uh, when I got there, I got introduced to this word anabaptism and really didn't even know what it was or meant, mm -hmm. had no background to that. You know, as far as I was concerned, they were anti-Baptists. You know, I was like, what's, what's wrong with the Baptists? You know, I don't know. But um, slowly uh, and surely engaging with my different professors, you know, I got a sense of the kind of peace tradition, the emphasis on taking Jesus seriously. Um, I think it was clear that those who identified as pacifists within the biblical and religious studies department Strong pacifism was there, um, certainly emphasizing certain social questions. Now, it was probably a little bit hard for me to parse out at that time what was Anabaptism, what was just scholarship in general. You know, all that. It's all mixed and mashed together. Mm -hmm. But that was my introduction. And then when I was uh, getting ready to graduate from Messiah College, I got a phone call from the senior pastor at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, uh, and he wanted to come out and meet me. Mm -hmm. um, he was preparing. One of their youth pastors were leaving, um, and they heard about me. And so my senior year, he came out on campus, and we had a meal and just conversed. 
And honestly, what attracted me about the church was not that it was Anabaptists. It was actually just the conversations around race that they were having as a congregation that was built into their vision. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that I was passionate about. And so leaving Messiah College, I wouldn't have identified as Anabaptist, but I did begin wrestling with some of the themes that that are, are really critical to Anabaptism, right? Wrestling with questions around peace and violence, um, certainly the idea of following Jesus being more central to Christianity mm-hmm. than just, you know, adoring him, right, in some mm-hmm. broad sense. And so I went to there not necessarily identifying as an Anabaptist, but appreciating the conversations and the questions that it raised for me in my own walk and journey. But I would say while I was there in that community, um, a lot of things began to happen probably quietly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The kind of hospitality that I received. I was a stranger and literally had people put me up in their homes, um, which I just thought was crazy. Like, why you got this random black guy in your home for months, right, Mm -hmm. before I was able to get settled and um, get situated. And so the kind of hospitality that I received was moving the, the emphasis of the church in terms of some of the social concerns that they had, um, I just thought it was really beautiful the way that it was kind of being fleshed out in community. Um, and it wasn't a perfect community either. We wrestled and I disagreed with some stuff that was happening there. Um, and so all of that was happening. Uh, but I was only there for about three and a half years. Even as a youth pastor there, I never identified as Anabaptist, which is interesting. Um, though, I, again, I think I had some inclinations and leanings in that way. But when I left and went back home to begin my MDiv program um, in Philly, I actually became associate pastor for my home church that I grew up in. And it was actually at that point when I was in seminary, I was reconnecting with friends from my old social networks and that I realized that you know, these Anabaptists did something to me, right? Um, and then, yeah. and so I actually, while I wasn't a part of the Anabaptist community, when I first started referring to myself as an Anabaptist, mm-hmm. and for me, you know, if I were to sum up the oversimplification definition for me of what that meant was taking Jesus seriously, right? Mm-hmm. And that's usually the language I kind of sum it down to, right? And how to do that in community with others. And so, yeah, that that was my journey. That's how I got into the Anabaptist community. And then it was really while I was in Philadelphia that I started connecting with um, many more black and brown Anabaptist leaders, uh, particularly in in multiracial communities that are all throughout Philly. I often say Philadelphia is the best place to be Anabaptist in the world. It's just beautiful. The different kind of Anabaptist expressions that exist in the city. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like I remember in the book how much I loved your little vignette of the religious studies professor who everybody cited as being ultra-liberal feminist. And then you walked in the classroom, and it was kind of coming face-to-face with with a different sense of Anabaptism and stuff like that. That That's right. It was Rita Finger, Dr. Finger, (laughs) um, old Mennonite woman who's – she has a – she stumbled in her speech and just a sweet but serious Mm -hmm. scholar – um, and yeah, I mean, she was have, forcing us to take close readings of the text, right? And to wrestle with what kind of Jesus do we see being revealed, mm-hmm. right, in these stories. Um, and uh, it was clear, you know, Jesus identified with women in a different way than I had ever grasped at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, 
the rumors around her that she was some radical feminist that hates men all broke down and I realized, you know, no, she's trying to teach us the way of Jesus, but through scholarship, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hart writes of a process of taking Jesus seriously that requires learning to see again. He writes, This call to not go with your gut, to move toward an intimate, transformative, and relational solidarity with marginalized and oppressed people is not easy. It requires learning to see again from oppressed people's perception of things rather than through one's own lens. Was the idea of vulnerable witness and then I put that side by side with what your book was talking about about kind of the bottom-up work and this idea that Jesus identified with the poor and hungry and invited them to participate in a kingdom of justice and peace in which the most vulnerable are no longer neglected he joined in their lives and experienced their struggles can you talk about uh, what you write about about bottom-up thinking and this idea of vulnerable witness yeah, um, I guess, I mean, the roots of it is, and it is, it's been deeply shaped by, I mean, I would say, like, I'm complex because I am both shaped by, I, I often say now, say, the radical discipleship side of Anabaptism and the kind of prophetic tradition in the black church, right? And it's mm. kind of a fusion of those two things. But, but I think for me, when I think about, um, Anabaptism in this kind of bottom up, you know, there's this deep suspicion of the powers, of elitism, of top down measures that are coercive, um, that ultimately often are so violent. You know, there's a way in which, I don't know, I look around in our society and I see like so much hope put in solely into, like, the system and electoral politics, right? Mm. And I'm not someone who opts out of electoral politics. That's been a position that some Anabaptists have taken. That's not my position at all. But it seems like a strange posture to put so much hope in electoral politics and top-down politics and in some ways abdicating the potential for grassroots movements on the ground. And in some ways it is neglecting, like, the redistributing of power, right, mm -hmm. from the bottom up rather than concentrated top-down power. And so I think, for me, redistributed power is, number one, I think, more ideal, right? Um, that's why I think, like, organizing on the ground, connecting one-on-one -on -one with people, inviting them to participate and join in what's happening um, is a much more beautiful way to embody the very thing that you're ultimately mm -hmm. working towards. I think we have less control than we would like to think also. There's a way of looking at history in terms of like, who are the kings and the presidents, right? But mm -hmm. I think there's another way to look at what's happening on the ground. And so like, I love uh, scholars like Vincent Harding, right? He tells, he has a book called There is a River, and it's a uh, history of black folk struggling and resisting from the jump, right? From the moment that they're being captured in Africa to coming over here, that there's always this long river of struggle and resistance that's happening on the grassroots. Um, and sometimes we miss that powerful story and the change that has come from that, right? Mm. Um, because we're always looking up 
and we're not seeing what's actually happening on the ground. And so I think, um, yeah, peacemaking, um, that is, what does it mean for it to be embodied, right? I think you wrote about putting our bodies in new places. Yeah, what what do we do with our actual bodies? How do Mm -hmm. our bodies disrupt the status quo, how do, I mean, in some ways, if you think about, I was, this, my crazy thoughts, this morning I was thinking about the language of, like, civil religion and then civil disobedience, right? Mm-hmm. Civil religion, so I, I read it more negatively than many scholars have, because I think that societies want to, they want you to obey uh, a particular way of being citizen in the society that upkeeps empire in some ways, right? Um and, and so what does it mean for our bodies, for the best option is for our bodies to be disobedient to empire and the way the narratives that are told, what it looks like to be good, a good citizen, right? Mm-hmm. Like oftentimes that uh, perpetuates, whether it be, you know, prison industrial complex or the military complex around the world, all these things that are tied into being a good citizen, right? right. And so... What does it mean for us to embody disobedience in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that our imagination, again, for our presence with our neighbors and our communities um, needs to be reimagined in radical ways often. Yeah. Hart's language of empire and limited envisioning reminds me of Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination, often speaking of the importance of the arts. Brueggemann writes about limited visions of a theology of empire and human conquest. He writes, Hope is the refusal to accept the reality which is the majority opinion. Hope is subversive, for it limits the grandiose pretension of the present daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments is now called into question. Our conversation moved into struggles that Hart's own students had with limited envisioning as they considered the book The Color of Money on the role of monetary systems and policy in suppressing black bodies and voices. It was interesting that towards the end of the book, as she begins thinking about the idea of reparations, right, um, I was watching how my different students were reacting because all of them understood the argument. Um, Mm -hmm. But there was a way in which the first response among some of my white students was, it wouldn't be fair if we took something from white people. That was their first response after hearing all of this stuff. They were worried about the impact it was going to have on white people if there were some kind of reparations. And I just thought it was a really strange response, right? In some ways, um, they lacked the complete capacity to empathize with the black people that they just learned all this history about. That for them, they'd say was transformational. It changed their whole understanding of the history and all that. And still, they still are empathizing that their biggest concern is what's the impact on white people, right? Mm -hmm. So that literally race was 
um, managing and controlling their empathy and identification with others. It limited the capacity to, in some ways, to be fully human with all human beings, a shared humanity, right? It wasn't a shared humanity. It was uh, white humanity still being privileged, even as they can identify and discuss and articulate very well how anti-black oppression has played out in the 20th century. And I guess that's one way of looking at, like, this problem is, um, what does it mean to be fully human in the sense to actually um, fully share in the human condition and see us all as participating in that, to see that our lives are bound up in one another, that we all have human dignity, right? Um, and that we are all seeking for the well-being and the flourishing of all people, not just our own people that we identify with. It seems that white supremacy is shaping people away from that, right? So that, you know, the primary concerns is whiteness. It is sustaining that, even as they're wrestling with questions of justice and want to say that it's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's just one example, I think, of of what it means to be, to, to participate in this humanizing project. I think at the end of the day, when we step back, nobody wants to think of themselves as people who... Are, are apathetic to slavery, to Jim Crow, you know, mm-hmm. or to mass incarceration today or whatever else we want to talk about. But it requires, you know, some pretty radical transformations in terms of the kind of people we're going to be with others um, that I think we're not aware of how it negatively impacts white people. Not just, I think mm-hmm. there's so much conversation around white privilege and talking, talking about the economics of it. But, but it, it misses uh, uh, the human side of things also in terms of the kind of people we are, the kind of character we have, and how we interact with others. Drew Hart notes that one of the problems that often leads to white defensiveness is our definition of the term racism. Racism is often defined as, quote, personal prejudice or hatred of someone of a different race. This definition protects those who unconsciously, quote, operate out of racial bias because they can always deny it. Instead of choosing a definition that invites personal judgment, defensiveness, and individual realities, Hart invites us to adopt critical race theory, choosing a more systemic definition of racism. A more systemic definition invites us to examine our role, complicity, and conscious and unconscious responses within larger racialized systems. In so doing, we engage in the collective work of a humanizing project. So then you talk talk about solidarity. I think this continues this conversation. And you write, solidarity requires that socially advantaged people realize that their life in this racialized society requires them to use their bodies. That goes back to our first conversation as a living sacrifice. In joining in the struggle and encountering the presence of Jesus in new and unimagined ways, people will be amazed at how their fractured relationships with God, others and themselves are reconciled. So we're not only talking about reconciliation as the deconstruction of racism, but we're also talking about it as kind of a hope for the repair of all fractured relationships. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. So I'll go back to my experience with that first church that I was a youth pastor at. And, you know, it had a, the language of racial reconciliation was really important to that congregation. But the more I struggled with how they talked about reconciliation, because it was, it was bringing people together, but it wasn't necessarily participating, I would, in my, my understanding of what that might mean, right? Participating in um, the pursuit of justice and well-being for all people together. It was, you could have people who lived on the West Shore, right across from Harrisburg, which is a historically white area where black people were banned from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sending their kids to the schools that have better funding, this and that, and Meanwhile, on Sunday morning, they're coming together with folks who are part of the Harrisburg School District, and their kids are uh, experiencing underfunding and all kinds of challenges um, that are historic and go back decades. And it seemed like that outer world had nothing to do with reconciliation. Hmm. But it seems like if there's a way to think about reconciliation in terms of solidarity, right, on the ground, in the struggle, together, joint, right, fully human together, and that your concerns and my concerns are bound up together and that we're going to collaborate and link arms in that kind of real way, um, it seems to be a better context for meaningful reconciliation. Otherwise, reconciliation feels cheap, right? Yeah. You know, we, if we play off Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Cheap <laughs> reconciliation and costly reconciliation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I think about some of the uh, friends that I have now who, you know, so I'm a leader of a group in Harrisburg called Free Together. And one of the co-leaders is a white woman, a friend of mine, Heather. And I think about the, the collaboration that we do on the work, like, our friendship has been built out of co-laboring together, right? Um, And so that seems to be, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that specific context, but but, but that kind of solidarity um, in the midst of actually struggling together for the flourishing of all in our neighborhood, that that is, I think, a more meaningful way to think about reconciliation than just let's sing Kumbaya or have a, you know, Mm -hmm. potluck together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In his book, Hart explored solidarity through the language and model of a Jesus at the margins. He states, Jesus identified with the poor and the hungry and invited them to participate in a kingdom of justice and peace in which the most vulnerable are no longer neglected. He joined in their lives and experienced their struggles. Jesus knew what it was like to have a cousin executed by the powers that be. He personally understood the vulnerable feeling of being picked up at night, put through an unfair trial, and executed by the authorities without anyone to champion his cause. Dr. Drew Hart and I then entered a conversation about the power of religious traditions that are born on the underside of power. But honestly, like my dissertation, I actually fully went in. And so my dissertation put black theology and Anabaptism in conversation. Mm-hmm. And I often joke and say, it was just me, you know, working out my own problems, right? <laughs> yes, um, but it was it's thinking about how both of these traditions, you know, the black church and the black prophetic tradition in particular, you know, along with um, Anabaptism, like you have these two Christian movements that are born on the underside 
of Christendom. And then you could say white supremacy, partially with Anabaptists. It's in the early phases of colonialism at that moment. Um, but certainly the black church, right, completely under that. And so for me, here are two traditions that help us in different ways both think through questions around uh, Christendom, right, Christian supremacy, coercively being pushed down on society, as well as white supremacy and how do we think about the racialization of our society today. Um, and they do it in a both. There's a creative exchange that can kind of go on, um, but but on similarity front, like they both are turning to the person of Jesus and saying, let's take seriously the particularities of Jesus, right? His life and teachings and death. Anabaptists usually emphasizing the peacemaking of Jesus. I'd say that um, that the Black Church and African American tradition has often emphasized. Um, you know, the liberation of Jesus, uh, participating in the liberation of God and the um, Jesus's solidarity and identification with the oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, you could say that there are themes of each in, on either side to some degree, but certainly those emphases, right, those different angles. And so I think that that's kind of, for me, really important to think. And it opens me up then to think about, you know, what are other Christian traditions that help us understand and see Jesus from the underside, right? Because, I mean, the challenge that we find now is that Jesus has been so deeply domesticated, um, whitened, right? Mm -hmm. I often now say Jesus has been made a mascot for the status quo and the social order, right? Um, And and so he um, has been misrepresented and mangled in so many ways that he, Jesus is used as an ideological weapon, right? to further oppression and injustice so often in our world, which seems so strange if anyone actually reads Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so for me, um, how do we rediscover and encounter um, Jesus in the world anew, but not from that top-down mascot, whitened Jesus, but instead um, the Jesus that, you know, that black folk discovered when they stole away from the slave masters in the in the woods to encounter you know a liberating god like that's the jesus that i think is is needed in our world today and um and so i think about anabaptism in that kind of way as a broader conversation of um just the way on a global level christianity has been so mangled and diseased in in so many ways in which um if there's going to be hope for christianity moving forward Jesus and Christianity need to be salvaged. <laughs> um, and I think that, that Anabaptism is one of the traditions that are really participating in that um, discourse, but also embodying it on the ground. Mm. I think that's one of the things that has struck me so uniquely about Anabaptism is that it really, it's, it's, a, it's almost a theology that rejects the idea of theology. It's a yeah. lived Yeah, it's a lived it's theology. A, it's a lived theology in many yeah. ways. epilogue of his book, Hart relates the fear of being pulled over at gunpoint by police for a lapsed car registration. He details how black youth are routinely trained to dehumanize themselves and sacrifice their dignity. As I reflect upon Hart's story, I think about Donna Hicks' work on dignity within the field of peacebuilding. In her book on that subject, Hicks states, Dignity is different from respect. Dignity is a birthright. We have little trouble seeing dignity when a child is born. 
there is no question about children's value and worth. Treating others with dignity then becomes the baseline for our interactions. And when a mutual sense of worth is recognized and honored in our relationships, we are connected. She later writes of injuries to dignity. We feel injuries to our dignity at the core of our being. They are a threat to the very essence of who we are. Worse, the perpetrators get away with harming us, and the injuries usually go unattended. If we continue to harm dignity, we will see more broken hearts, more broken families, and more intractable conflicts all over the world until we understand and accept the truth about the toxic emotional power of the violation of dignity. I invite us all to embark and continue on a dignity-enhancing, humanizing project that recognizes worth and value of black lives, a walk of addressing systemic racism within our society and culture. I am starting my own walk by returning to unread books on black history and racism and listening to new podcast voices with expertise on this subject. In music education, I highly recommend a new podcast on The Score, urban music education podcast on white fragility. And most importantly, I recommend the penetrating scholarship of Dr. Drew Hart from Messiah College. His newest book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, is available for pre-order now. This is the Music and Peace Building Podcast, hosted by Kevin Shorner Johnson. At Elizabethtown College, we host a Master of Music Education with an emphasis in peace building. Thinking deeply, we reclaim space for connection and care. Join us at musicpeacebuilding.com.